Thank you for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. In Luke chapter 11, one day Jesus was praying, and when he finished praying, his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. There must have been something about the way Jesus prayed that caught their attention. There was something about his prayer life that was notable to them. And I say that because... uh, they, no doubt, over the years had, had observed and heard many, many people pray. It wasn't the idea that he was praying that was new. It was the, must have been the way that, that Jesus prayed that caught uh, their attention. There was something about his prayer life that prompted them to desire uh, to pray like that as opposed to the way they had heard other people pray over the years. They wanted to learn from, from Jesus how to pray. And so they asked him, teach us. Jesus had a notable prayer life. Now, we would expect that from him, wouldn't we? We would just expect that of Jesus in every realm of life. But there is another notable prayer life that I want to point you to uh, this morning. One that you might not know as much about or be as familiar with because it appears in the life of a follower of Jesus who you probably don't know a whole lot about, maybe you haven't heard much about, if, uh, if anything. And his story primarily is told in the fourth chapter of the book of Colossians. I invite you to turn there in your copy of God's Word. Colossians chapter 4. We're going to look at just two verses, verses 12 and 13. This is the primary reference to the man we want to look at. He appears in a few other places, but usually just the listing of his name. But we learn something significant about him in these verses as Paul closes his letter to the church at Colossae. And he does, as he does in so many of his letters, begins to extend greetings from those who are on his team to the churches to whom he's writing. And this man is one of those co-workers of Paul. His name is Epaphras. Epaphras had come to Christ, we think, under the ministry of Paul when Paul was preaching the gospel in Ephesus. And then Epaphras had gone back to his hometown. He's from Colossae. And there, just from his own personal compulsion, or perhaps Paul had sent him back to Colossae to preach the gospel. He probably planted the church to which this book, this letter was written. The church at Colossae, Laodicea was nearby, Hierapolis, you'll hear those mentioned in the passage. And there he no doubt had shared the gospel and helped to plant the churches there uh, as well. He continued to partner with Paul over the next several years. He appears in these closing verses and we learn from that that what I want you to see today is that he too had a notable prayer life. In other words, there's something about his prayer life that stood out. And I believe that because as Paul lists all of these co-workers, he calls their names. Some of them he calls his fellow servants, co-workers. He uses a variety of terms. But only about one does he mention their prayer life. 
and that is Epaphras. He's the only one. There's something about Epaphras and his prayer life that stood out to the Apostle Paul. And so it's a notable prayer life. And I think we can learn a great deal from him about how uh, to pray. So let's read those two verses in Colossians chapter 4, uh, verses 12 and 13. I'm reading from the New International Version. Epaphras who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Now, as we talk about the truths from these two verses this morning, I, I, I want to couch it in a certain way because I know that you understand that learning to pray like so much of the Christian life is very much a process. And so I want to share these truths, couch them in those terms that acknowledges that, that this is something we must, we must grow into. And so I want you to see today is if you want to have an effective prayer life or a notable prayer life, first of all, you must grow in praying continually. Continually. Look at verse 12. Paul says of Epaphras, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. Always. The word means continually, habitually. If you study the scripture closely about prayer, you'll find that it's one of the most common urgings about prayer in all the word of God. Earlier here in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul urged this kind of praying among the people in the church to whom he's writing that Epaphras was ministering to. He says in Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. When he wrote the church at Ephesus, he also urged them upon this kind of praying. In verse 18, he wrote to them of chapter 6 in Ephesians, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17, which by the way makes a great memory verse because it's only two words long. So if you ever need a memory verse, choose it. Paul urges the church at Thessalonica in the same way. Pray continually. Or in the ESV it says pray constantly. In the Christian standard version it says pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that, you, that praying is all that you uh, ever do, that your praying is without interruption. That'd be impossible in this life. So it cannot possibly mean that. But it does mean that prayer arises in your heart and your mind repeatedly and frequently you, you turn to it. It means that prayer is not just something that's to be confined to certain periods of the day. You may be very faithful at having, and I hope that you are, a devotional time where you spend time alone with God in the Word and in prayer. But prayer cannot be limited to that uh, time of day. It can't be limited to bedtime. Uh, I had, uh, 
came across a, an acquaintance not long ago that I hadn't seen in a long time, and he's a man that I'd begun praying for several years ago, and I told him, I said, I, I, I'm still praying for you, and he was appreciative of that, and he said, oh, I pray every day. I, I say thank you to God every morning, and when I go to bed, I say thank you at night. That was the extent of his prayer life. Not sure he's really even a, a believer. How sad that that for some believers even, that's the extent of their prayer life, morning, evening, devotional time, that, that, that the scripture does not teach that at all. Prayer is to arise throughout the day, arise up in our hearts and our minds. It's something we return to frequently. It's ever at the front of our heart and the front of our mind. It permeates our consciousness. It permeates and saturates every aspect of our being. It's like breath. It's like breathing. Back in 1982, the Today Show on NBC uh, in New York City invited Billy Graham uh, to, to the morning show that day, and they were going to interview him. And when the Graham team arrived there, the, one of the producers told them that they had set aside a special room uh, for the evangelist to go into before the interview and give him a place to pray. And the assistant said, uh, well, Mr. Graham won't be using that room. And the producer was shocked. <laughs> he expressed that. He, he just assumed that he would want to pray before going on live, you know, on national television for that uh, broadcast. And so the assistant explained. He said this. He said, Mr. Graham started praying when he got up this morning. He prayed while eating breakfast. He prayed on the way over here in the car. And he'll probably be praying all the way through the interview. That's what the scripture's talking about. Praying continually. Now, if you aspire to that kind of a prayer life, and you should, how do you do that? How do you develop that in your life? Well, the philosopher and uh, author, Professor Dallas Willard once said, the more we pray, the more we think to pray. The more we pray, the more we think uh, to pray. Prayer tends to produce, produce more prayer. The more you do it, the more you'll find yourself being prompted to do it. The more you do it, the more you'll recognize the Spirit's prompting. The more you'll respond to it. Over time, it becomes habitual and continual. And so I wish I had some secret for you. I don't. You just got to dive in and start doing it. And the more you do it, the more habitual and the more continual it'll become. Your prayer life will take on something notable where it's absent in so many lives. You grow in praying continually. And secondly, I want you to see that you must grow in praying fervently. I tell you, this is one aspect of, I think, most prayer lives I know of, including my own, is often lacking. You must grow in praying fervently. Look in verse 12. Paul, the next phrase, uses a very vivid metaphor. He, Epiphras, is always, continually, wrestling in prayer for you. Rest, isn't that a vivid picture of the prayer life of Epiphras? The word literally means to agonize over something. And it was often applied, indeed, in the realm of athletics to wrestling matches. It, it described the kind of energy that's exerted in wrestling. So imagine that for a moment. Some of you may have, may have been wrestlers. <laughs> Imagine the amount of effort 
The amount of energy that a wrestler must uh, produce, must exert in, in, in having a, a wrestling match. And, and that's how Paul described the prayer life of Epaphras. He, he wrestles in prayer for you. In verse 13, I think he amplifies that with a different metaphor. He says in verse 13, I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Working hard. It's a word that means heavy toil. It means laboring at something until it hurts. And I think Paul is talking in one instance there about the prayer life of Epaphras. The only other thing I can think of that might pop, I mean, Epaphras is in Rome with Paul where he's in prison writing this letter, and so he couldn't be working hard for, he's not with them. How is he working hard for them? Part of it could be he means that he, he represents you well there. He's ministering here on behalf of you to me, and I appreciate that. But I think he's talking also about Epaphras' prayer life. He's wrestling in prayer. He's working hard in prayer uh, for you, laboring at the prayer. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand this. This idea of neither of these metaphors, wrestling in prayer or laboring hard in prayer, don't get the idea that, it, uh, that you know, in prayer time you're getting, and you wrestle with God and you get him all wrapped up and you pin God to the ground and maybe wrap his arm up behind his back trying to make him give you what you've asked for. That's not the picture. Or laboring hard, you know, just work, work, work until, until God finally gives in and uh, like a reluctant God gives you what you've asked for. That is not the picture. We all know God is more eager to do for us what we're asking if, if it corresponds to the word. We're going to talk about that in a moment. No, it's not that. It's, it's a reference. He's trying to describe our, it speaks of our zeal. In prayer, our earnestness in prayer. Uh, it speaks of our praying with great intensity, with great exertion. To understand it fully, there's some other good examples in, in the Word of God. In James chapter 5 and verses 17 and 18, James points us to the prophet, the Old Testament prophet Elijah. It says there, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly, that's the word, that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crop. He prayed earnestly. Or in Acts chapter 12, you're probably familiar with the story where Peter was in prison and it says the church was gathered together in a house and they were praying for him. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 5, it says, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. They were wrestling for him in prayer. They were laboring hard in prayer for him. But the best example of all, as always, is Jesus. Luke chapter 22, Jesus, the last night of his life, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know that picture well. And there Jesus wrestles in prayer over the will of the Father for him. He's going to the cross. And in Luke twenty-two forty-four, it says, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground <laughs> that's how earnestly how fervently Jesus was praying over the will of the father for him in that uh, instant now consider those examples 
that of Epaphras at the church at Jerusalem, prophet Elijah, Jesus. Consider these examples as you hear the words of John Bunyan, 17th century Puritan preacher, the author of the classic Christian work, Pilgrim's Progress. There's a companion book to that called Pilgrim's Prayer Book, and in it, some of those convicting words I personally have heard <laughs> come about prayer. Paul Bun uh, John Bunyan writes, far away, far away from the Bible's example are most people when they pray. Prayer with earnestness and urgency is genuine prayer in God's account. Alas, the, the greatest number of people are not conscious at all of the duty of prayer. And as for those who are, it is to be feared that many of them are very great strangers to sincere, sensible, and affectionate emotional outpouring of their hearts and souls to God. Too many content themselves with a little lip service and bodily exercise, mumbling over a few imaginary prayers. When the emotions are involved in such urgency that the soul would waste itself rather than go without the good desired, there is communion and solace with Christ. In that quote, he gives us the secret to fervent praying, I think. Because you might hear this and think, okay, I got to work. I gotta, I'm going to pray. I got to get this worked up now and have all the energy I can have. It comes naturally. The, the way that John Bunyan talked about it is he said, the idea is, is that your soul would rather waste itself away than not receive what you're asking for. It means that the, the burden that you have for the person you're praying for is so heavy that you couldn't bear it if it doesn't happen in their life. It, it means that, uh, that there is this deep longing inside of you for the, you're praying for an unbeliever to come to faith in Christ and you'd rather your soul waste away than see them die without Christ. Then you pray fervently. You're praying for your brother or sister in Christ who has this heavy crisis in their life and you'd, you'd rather waste away yourself than for them not to find the strength and the peace they need to endure that. That is what generates this fervency and this energy. Now, on a practical note, such fervent praying doesn't mean praying long, extended prayers necessarily. The great 19th century evangelist D.O. Moody once said, some men's prayers need to be cut short at both ends and set on fire in the middle. <laughs> it's not that we need to pray with more words. It's that we need to pray with more urgency and pray more fervently. And so you grow in praying fervently to have a notable prayer life. The third thing is this. Grow, you must grow in praying specifically, specifically. Look again at verse 12. We're going word by word. He is always, continually, wrestling in prayer fervently for you. Now, it is a plural you there, and 
And, and so Paul is talking about all those brothers and sisters in the church at, at Colossae. But I think, and I, I can't prove this to you from the scripture, but it just makes sense with the things you look at in Epaphras' prayer life, is that I don't think when, when Epaphras prayed, he prayed for just everybody in general. His prayers were targeted in behalf of specific people. Here, in this case, it's the believers that made up the church at Colossae and perhaps Laodicea and Hierapolis where it was intended that that letter also uh, 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 be read. But when Epaphras prayed for the church, when he said he's resting in prayer for you, I don't think it means he just prayed for the church as a whole in general. I think probably Epaphras prayed for them by name. He saw in their, his mind's eye there in the prison in Rome with Paul. He would see this brother and that sister and this family. And I think he prayed for them one by one, very specifically by name. And I would just encourage you to train yourself to do that. To discipline yourself uh, to, to do that. To When you pray, is don't pray in general, pray specifically. Lift up the names of specific people and intercede for them. And some of you say, well, duh, what else would you do? Well, listen, I, hear, I, I know in my own life and I hear it in a lot of other prayers. You hear people, don't fall into this habit of, oh, Lord, this morning I pray for all my family. And then you pray a prayer for all my family. That's wonderful but call their names out to the Lord. And you say, what does it matter? I think you'll find that it brings greater fervency <laughs> to your prayer life. I think, it, yeah, I think it has some power in it. And when I pray for my family, I've tried to discipline myself. Yeah, I pray for them. I don't say, Lord, my family today, I try to pray for them every day, every morning, and throughout the day, but every day to start with, Lord, be with my family today and do this. I don't do that. Lord, I lift up Mulaney to you. And I pray for Micah and Mackenzie and Caleb and Taylor. And I, I, Lord, I, and I pray for them by name. Don't, don't let yourself fall. Lord, I pray for all my family. Or, Lord, I pray for all my friends today. Here's what I'm praying. No, name them. Who are you praying for? Call their names out to God. God, I, I pray today for all my fellow students at school. I pray for all my, all my coworkers. And above all else, Please don't fall into say, oh, Lord, I pray today for all my unbelieving friends. All those in my life and family that are lost, Lord, I pray for them today. No. Name them one by one. Because it has in it the sense that you bring each one of them to God and you're lifting them up as we talk about in prayer. It's as if you are bringing them before God one by one and asking God to do these specific things uh, in, 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 in their life. Now, sometimes you, you pray for them all by name and you're praying the same thing for all of them. That's fine. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And sometimes it'll be you're praying for this thing for this person and this thing for this person, but pray specifically. And I really believe that such praying has great benefits to it. One of the things it'll do is it'll, it'll strengthen your bond with that person, your ties to them. Uh, between you and your brothers and sisters in Christ, it'll just create this bond. I don't know how it happens. It's a spiritual thing. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. But you'll, you cannot help but love somebody more deeply the more you're praying for them. And it's true of lost people, unbelievers that you're praying for. 
As you pray for them, your burden for them will grow. You will be more alert to them and more sensitive to them. And that leads me to the benefit I think that comes from praying specifically person by person is that it will open up all kinds of doors of opportunity for ministry and for witness. There is something very powerful about telling someone, I'm praying for you. Not in that pharisaical condescending, I'm gonna pray, well, I'm gonna pray for you. Not like that. But sincere and heartfelt, I'm praying for you. I tell you, peep, there's something powerful about that. I've never heard anybody say, well, please stop. <laughs> never had anybody tell me that. They appreciate it. They, they so welcome that it's, it's meaningful to people. It's meaningful to you, isn't it, when you hear it? I think about, remember in, uh, in Luke chapter 22, that final, as Jesus is approaching that final time of his life, he, he told Peter, he said, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. And, it, and in verse uh, 32, it says, Jesus said, but, but Simon, I've prayed for you that your strength will not fail. Now, I, I, that had to be so meaningful to Peter to know in that moment, Jesus said, I prayed for you, Peter, <laughs> and here's what I pray. And he heard from Jesus' own lips what he was uh, praying for him. In Philemon, uh, verse 4, where Paul writes to his brother in Christ, his friend Philemon, he says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers. That had to be meaningful to him. Now, what happens is, is that perhaps it's gonna give you an opportunity to minister to someone in a way you wouldn't have had before. Because you've said to so-and-so, I've been praying for you. The next time a need arises in their life, they need somebody, guess who they're gonna turn to? They're gonna come to you, the person who said, I'm praying for you. And they're gonna ask you to pray for them about this or minister to them in some way. There'll be a need perhaps that that you can uh, meet. Or most importantly of all is the unbeliever, the one that you're trying to, you want so much to come to know Christ. And, and, and you tell, when you tell them, oh, I'm praying for you. Now listen, I don't usually tell my friends like that. I don't say, man, I'm praying for you that you'll get saved. I don't say that. I just always tell them, I'm praying about this for you. I think about need, other needs in their life. I know that's their greatest need, but I'm just trying to open the door. And I just say, I'm, I'm praying for you about that. I'm just praying for you in general. I pray for you. I just tell them, I'm praying for you and your family all the time in my prayers. And they always appreciate it. And what happens is, is when a crisis arises in their life, and it will, guess who they'll call? They'll call you. And it'll give you an opportunity to share Christ with them. And when you do share the gospel with such a person, they know it's sincere. They know you love them because you've been praying for them. And they'll, they'll receive it much more, uh, much more sincerely themselves. They'll welcome it because you've demonstrated that you, uh, that you care. Now listen, practically, don't you dare tell someone you've been praying for them when you haven't. That's easy to do. You feel guilty because you haven't been praying, so you go ahead and tell them you have. Don't lie in the name of Jesus. <laughs> That's what you, you're, you know, you're trying to seem spiritual and you're lying. Don't do that. And don't you dare tell people that you will pray for them if you're not going to. Do you ever fall into that? Don't we all do that? Oh, I'll, I'll be praying for you. And then you never, you hear about it later. You go, oh yeah, I told them I was going to be praying. You haven't been. Don't do that. Grow in praying specifically, name by name, person by person. And finally, Grow 
in praying purposefully, purposefully. Here, we're told what Paul prayed for the church at Colossae. And, and as he prayed for them, those believers there, he had a very specific purpose in mind for them. It, it, it's in the last part of verse 12. Look, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. And here is what he's praying, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. So that word, the word that, T-H-A-T, some translations it says so that, tells you here's the purpose of his praying. Here's, what he was, here's why he was praying for them. This is the desired result of his prayer for them. This is actually what he's praying for them. And you'll see in a moment that it is a very appropriate desire that he expresses for them in his prayers. And it's appropriate because it was biblically based. Now that's not true of all our prayers, is it? Honestly, all our prayers are not biblically based. Uh, Lifeway Research did a survey back in 2014 where they asked people, tell us what you pray for. And you know, uh, it, it wouldn't surprise you, don't think, to know that 36% of people, that's over a third, said they prayed for their own financial prosperity. Closely related to that, 32%, I'm, I'm sorry, 21% prayed to win the lottery. And 16% prayed for their favorite sports teams to win. Now, now there's nothing biblical about any of those <laughs> purposes. That's not, uh, I guess that's purposeful praying, it's just not biblically purposeful. God's not going to honor those kind of prayers. What a waste of prayer uh, that is. Look what, look what, Epaphras prayed for them that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. You want to know what to pray for people? Pray for your brothers and Christ? Just take that phrase right there and pray that for them. That you may stand firm, not wavering from, not being wishy-washy about, but rather committed to, refusing to budge, from what? From all the will of God. Not just parts of it. Not just your favorite part. Not just the easy part, but all of it. That you may be mature, growing in Christ's likeness is what he means there. Fully assured, confident then that you're in the will of God. Confident that that's the best place to be. That's the place you want to be. If I had to sum up in my own words briefly what I think Paul, what Epaphras was praying for them was this. He was praying he was long, remember he's praying, he's wrestling this for them. He's fervently praying. He's longing to see them living confident, contented lives, conformed to the will of God and to the character of Jesus. It's a powerful prayer. It's purposeful praying because it is a biblical purpose. It comes from the very heart of God himself because that's what God reveals to us in his word. And when you pray like that, you know he's going to answer it. He's already told us in his word this is his will for us. And we know that if we ask anything according to his will, we will have what we've asked of him. So if you want to make sure that, that God responds to your prayer, make sure you're praying the, according to the purposes of of God and the way you make sure of that is to make sure that the content of your prayers is the Word of God 
No more, Lord, bless them and bless them and bless them. Just don't pray like that. That's a waste of your time. What does the word of God suggest? If you'll take that, you'll be assured of praying in a way that God hears and answers prayer. And I just want to give you two or three examples real quickly. I'm not going to explain them or say anything about them except the first one. But you'll have to look at it and you'll see what I mean. And many of you probably, probably know this already. For instance, in Romans chapter 10 in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart. Here, that, that's where fervency comes from. The longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. So you know when you're praying for an unbeliever that that is God's purpose for them. It's his purpose for every one of us. It's his purpose that they are saved from their sin, come into right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can know you're praying purposefully when you're praying for the salvation of someone, and you can really make your prayers purposeful if you'll pray for them in a way that the Scripture dictates. More than just, oh, Lord, please save them. I pray they'd come to know you. But look at how the word, I wish we had time to go into this so we really don't uh, deeply. The word of God describes the condition of lost people. Their eyes are blinded. So you pray, Lord, open their eyes. Their hearts are darkened. So you Lord, pray, Lord, enlighten the eyes of their heart. The Bible says the Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin. That's what they need to know. I, Lord, I pray, convince them that they are in sin and that that sin separates them from you. Lord, convince them that they are hopeless, for the Bible says they're without hope, without God, and therefore without hope. Oh, God, help them to see they're hopeless because they're without you. Or may they be convinced that Jesus alone, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father, but by me, oh, God, convince them. May they become convinced that they are helpless and hopeless, that Jesus is their only hope. Grant them repentance unto life, the Scripture says. I pray they'll repent and trust you. That's praying purposefully for lost people. It's so much more powerful than Lord save so-and-so. By the way, if you're here today and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I just described you the way the Bible describes you. You may not feel hopeless and helpless, but that's what the Word of God says. And our longing for you would be for you to take the step I just prayed for, that you would come to realize all of that and as a response to turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ. For he alone can save you from your sin and fit you to be in relationship with God now and for eternity in heaven. And quite honestly, we're talking about prayer today. You really don't, can't have a prayer life. God might be gracious and answer a prayer, but he's not bound to. Until you pray that most important of prayers where you bow before God and Confess your sin to him and turn away from it and repent and surrender your life to Jesus Christ, his rule in your life. That's the most important prayer you ever pray. And from there, this prayer life uh, uh, develops. I direct you to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12 as an example of the kinds of praying to pray. Or how about 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. 
With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you can pray that prayer for me anytime you want to. Scripture's full of them. Find them. Pray them. Not your own words. Pray the word of God to God and find your praying much more effective. It takes discipline. Discipline yourself. Train yourself to be purposeful in such praying and to grow in it. The results will be eternal in nature. Don't waste your time praying on all that other stuff. S.D. Gordon was uh, an evangelical author, uh, a uh, lay minister in the late 1800s, early 1900s. He once wrote these words. He said, the great people of the earth today are the people who pray, not those who talk about prayer. I'm afraid our churches are full of people who talk about prayer, study about prayer, we learn about prayer. But how much praying do we really do? Epiphras, I know, was one of the great men of his day because he didn't just talk about praying. He obviously prayed, and he prayed in a way that the apostle Paul took note of it. Continually, fervently, specifically, purposefully. And I just have no doubt God must have responded powerfully to the prayers of Epiphras. And I'm telling you, Chloe, that, that's why you should want, you should want a notable prayer life. Not, don't miss it, not so other people will look at, oh, wow, what a great prayer warrior. Heavens no, God forbid. But because you too will become more effective in prayer. And in that, in that kind of praying, God is going to respond to your prayers and he's going to do what you've asked because you're only asking to do what he's already said he wants to do. Remember, one of the ways that God's purposes are carried out, one of the ways that his power is channeled is through prayer. And so it is through prayer that you can be an instrument in seeing the kingdom of God furthered. You can be an instrument in seeing the name of Jesus glorified. What else do you want in life? And if that's your desire, you want to have a notable prayer life. Father, we pray today We pray today, Father, that you would forgive us for talking about prayer far more than we do it. And even oftentimes when we do it, it's so that we can say we did out of some legalistic habit we know we're supposed to, so we do. And sometimes we're just mouthing words. Sometimes we're just going through the motions. Please forgive us. Take each one of us today who are followers of Christ, Lord, and take us where, right where we are in our prayer life. And, and oh, Father, I pray that in the days to come that we would grow in our prayer lives, that we might 
pray more and more every day in a way that's pleasing to you, in a way that you would be so pleased to honor, to hear, to respond. We would pray today with those men who first followed you. And we would ask you today, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray like this. And Father, I pray for any among us today who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ as we spoke of a moment ago. And oh, Father, may today, through the simple description of their condition and hearing this today and the work you've already been doing in their heart and life, may this be the day when they would pray that first and most important of prayers of confession of sin and repentance and placing their faith in you and knowing salvation at your hand. Oh, Lord, today might be the day they pray that prayer. Thank you for this privilege to worship you today, Father. In these times as we sing to you, as we continue to open up our hearts to you, Lord, oh, just draw us close to you. Help us by your Spirit to pour out our worship, our praise, our thanksgiving, our adoration of you, Lord. Help us to pour it out to you in a manner worthy of you. For you are worthy. As our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.